So I think in terms of Queensland history and acknowledgement of South Sea Islander peoples, be interested to hearing about how that has come about or is there, do you feel like the history of South Sea Islander people um, and their labour has been acknowledged in Queensland history? I think Imelda's work, she's, she works at the Queensland Museum, but she's done incredible work with this archive, caring for this archive and making it open and accessible to her community. And she did this great exhibition last year called Plantation Voices, which was incredibly moving and such a powerful thing to have to acknowledge what happened on this country and what took place. So is that a too big question to start? I'll break it down, I think. Yeah, yeah. no, it's, it's a big question. <laughs> Yeah, so I'd just like to start as well acknowledging traditional owners and thank you, Maruchu, for that lovely welcome to country um, this evening because it's really lovely to be able to be here in this place and sharing our stories together. So, Cynthia, I'd like to also acknowledge your um, ancestors as well as acknowledging my own. It is a real honour to be here. As Cynthia said, I, I'm a curator actually at the Queensland Museum. It's not something I actually chose to do. It sort of chose me in a way. And it, it did, and it happened on my journey on the way to discovering actually my socio-islander heritage. Because it's not something you grow up knowing a lot about, unfortunately. And there's many reasons for that. And it's taken me, you know, 30 years or, well, 20 professional years of doing this work to actually uncover the reasons why our stories aren't well known. And also, you know, working with my community to actually work through those reasons and actually trying to heal some of that trauma that's happened along the way. And I didn't really know what I was stepping into at that time. and. You know, I'm not, I'd be interested to hear about your journey as well. And if you asked me 20 years ago, you know, anything about what I would know now, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought I would have been in this place and I wouldn't have thought that I would have done Plantation Voices at the State Library of Queensland. And we'll talk about, more about that later. But to be a third generation South Sea Islander, um, uh, in a state organisation and being able to present our stories uh, on that platform and to be able to have international visitors acknowledge our stories was a very emotional journey for myself and I think for my community as well. So it's one of Queensland's most hidden histories, uh, you know, and I think there's a lot of hidden and underrepresented stories out there and I think the Celsius story is just one and it's just the start and I think conversations like this are really important to really shed light to some of those stories. Maybe maybe a good starting point is sort of let's go back to the beginning of how did this happen? Um, how were people taken and tricked and kidnapped and forcibly taken across oceans? And this is sort of looking at Queensland's history, specifically that way with the Brisbane City Botanic Botanical Gardens. That was the site of the first experiments with sugar and granulating sugar. And there, those experiments succeeded and they go, okay, wow, we can grow sugar cane here. And then from that, it's sort of, we need cheap labor. Slavery has been abolished. We don't want to pay much, but we don't want to do much. So 
at this time it was still British citizens and subjects and, you know, being a British colony, they looked to other systems that seemed to be working. Indian subjects, Indian people were British subjects at the time, so therefore that's a viable option. They're already working along all the colonies around the world and their sugar plantations and other, um, other sort of indentured work. Let's bring them here. So they actually did create a Cooley Act and there was a lot of resistance against that in Australia they didn't want to bring brown these you know people and who wouldn't leave and they were too expensive you know they didn't want to pay them like or you know or work with the British government sort of to to do this so what happened with that um, resistance that they let that act lapse and then they brought in this other act which ended with them going to um, the you know Vanuatu and Solomon Islands and these places and tricking, coercing and kidnapping people as they have done, you know, with, with, in India that same, um, you know, people were promised something that wasn't true and the treatment and methods were, you know, um, the systems were still, you know, these, these systems of slave ships and how, you know, how these processes were, but under contracts and under these guys. So I think it's, it's a dark history but it's something that people need to acknowledge because, you know, it's, um, you know, they, they've, you know, you, we've survived through their stories and their legacies and their stories need to be heard. And I think there's a lot of shame around this history. From my family, I'm speaking, there is a lot of shame where this history wasn't talked about. And um, I think it's now that there is, there are people sort of coming, you know, there are academics and there are, you know, curators and their artists responding to this history and sharing this history? Um, yeah, look, you know, I think... I agree. There's, there's shame as well in our community. And, you know, it's... It, for me, it's taken... To see elders not share these stories but to hold them in. And, you know, because we need our elders to talk to us so we can hear the stories of our ancestors because they are the link but then understanding why they're not talking to us is also part of that intergenerational trauma, I suppose. But, you know, like, you know, I suppose, you know, South Islanders, we came out here between 1863 and 1904. And, you know, blackbirding was part of that history. And, you, you know, I mean, I'm in constant kind of war with historians and academics about you know, that word, blackbirding, slavery, indentured, you know, and what I can and what I can't claim as my own history, but yet it denies the history of my ancestors because they're the words that they use. And, you know, to be then told, well, that's not accurately true. But, you know, I think about these 10-year-old, you know, 14-year-old young men and some women, they're literally children, aren't they, to us all? And, you know, I think, what did they understand about that exchange in regards to contracts? Yeah, you know, you might understand you're going somewhere, but do you fully understand that? Like, if you're a child, if you have children, do you, do you think, like, your child would understood, OK, you're going to go on this boat to this other land and you will work? And, and the contracts, how they were signed, were just hands pushed against paper. Um, 
you know, literacy rates or understanding of what was being signed, you know, if you can't even sign your own name and these documents in English and that's not your language, what is that as a, as a contract and as an agreement? And, you know, if you agree to something, you know, you think you're going to be paid or you think you're going to, you know, like, like if, if you know that's what's actually going to happen, which not in all the cases they knew, and then, you, you, you know, you, the moment you're put on the ship, um, the conditions are horrendous and what to speak of when you have these plantation owners who don't necessarily follow things and every story is told from their perspective. So every police report, everything that is filed, everything that is written is from their perspective, not any of the people that are experiencing these. So I think this is something that is, you know, like a, a big part of your job, but also sort of like I work with this archive as well, trying to sift through what's been written and photographed and represented of our people and our communities and their history, our ancestors' history, yet it's all through this lens of this white male coloniser and where are their voices in this? Um, yeah, no, I have to, you know, I have, have to agree. And I, I mean, the work that I do in museums, you know, it, it is actually, it's a, it's a real honour, you know. I get to work with documentation and objects connected to ancestors, you know, some of these things are thousands of years old and I'm really blessed to be able to have that responsibility. But when I go to another institution and during Plantation Voices I went to the State Archives and, you know, I'm seeing name after name after name and I'm going, oh yeah, that's like such and such and that family lives here and that family lives here. Like they still, we still have connections to the names in the archives. Our families are still alive and yet the people who hold these, you know, this documentation don't fully understand or recognise the value of the documentation they have. And, uh, you know, you talk about fingerprints and handprints and... Uh, working in the State Library collection and I found a handprint on a piece of paper and, you know, to think that someone stood here 150 years ago and put their hand on that piece of paper and their fingerprints are all marked on that piece of paper and 150 years later, I, a descendant of the same people, sit here in these institutions and I see them and I recognise them and I acknowledge their stories and I think that's... And I think that's why it's so important that you're there in the institution because that's not happening and that should be happening um, and, like, care for that collection and that archive. What, like, you know, that's a living... You know, that's something more than just pieces of paper and I think from my end it's been very hard to access this archive and what has been accessible and what information I have been able to gain and it's sort of going onto eBay and finding images, like, you know, like people in the Europe and the UK, and, and they've got, like, you know, sort of coolie girl or, like, you know, like, sort of um, chingalese girl, you know, like, again, pe you know, photographs of people, and I'm like, who are taking these? Why do you have them? And, it, like, sort of we, we touched on before, you know, a lot of the time these are postcards of people working in servitude that people would send, like, to be like, oh, look at this idyllic industry how lovely it is without sort of really understanding that these are people, not a landscape, not a, you know, they're more than just objects. These are real stories. These are our families. This is our history. Yeah, definitely. And I did see a lot of photo, um, postcards in the collection. 
and yeah, I, I totally agree. Like, and and coming with that different lens and looking at it, you know, I'm really, I suppose, I'm a bit stuck for words because sometimes it's really hard for me to articulate my work because I think working in a colonial institution and in, in that kind of framework, it's really difficult for me to sometimes flick between the cultural and the institution and to figure out what those feelings are in between. Because sometimes I've got to switch them off to be able to do the job that I do because otherwise I've become too emotional. Um, but I think that's why I so feel very fortunate that you're here and you've agreed to be here and talking about your family history because in your job that's, that's pushed behind you and you've got to... There's all these rules you have to follow and you're constantly fighting for that information and that archive to be accessed and to be open and you do these incredible things where you bring community in and do these white glove days where they can go in and actually see images of their families. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Uh, like I said, I like to be in the background. <laughs> I'm not too good with compliments, but thank you very much. Um, yeah, look, uh, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm really blessed to do what I do and I want to share that with uh, as many community as I can. And and that's not just with my um, Australian South Islander community, but I'm, I work with um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. I also work with First Nations people across the Pacific. And, um, you know, I, it's a real responsibility to be able to be there to open that door to um, community, to be able to come in and connect with, um, well, in my case, uh, objects and documentation and also ancestors, you know. It's, uh, and I think that, um, and, it's, it, and it's really important that uh, I try to remind people to connect, rec you know, connect in. Like, it's really important. I talk to young people when they come through about, you know, you have a responsibility to connect into these stories because this is your history. And I say to them, you know, you're going to walk away and you're going to go, oh, yeah, I went to the museum today, I saw a few things. But, you know, in 10 years' time when they realise what they've seen, because I, I can understand that first time and a few of you have visited me at the museum and it can be quite overwhelming to see um, all those objects in the stores and um, the, the work that we do and... Um, so it's, it's a sort of a thing that you have to come back and revisit and process a lot. And I think those safe spaces, we were talking about that earlier. Definitely, like making sure there are safe spaces that you can access and that this is accessible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so important to access. But I think, but that sense of loss, like with that history and that there is this urgency there because all the old people are passing away and the stories are with them because what is in those archives and written down, you have to read between the lines. You're not really sure what's fact fiction and the stories that, that are more intangible or passed down and what, what actually, you know, that knowledge and that history of what's not being spoken or being hidden or is kind of disappearing. And, and um, I think, um, you know, what do we do about this intangible and what do we do about this history that is is not represented in those spaces. Actually, it's, I'm glad you talk about the intangible because um, I was looking at your artwork earlier, and um, was, you know, and I was reading about you know you've got the, the smell in there, and um, I actually looked at it and because my father grew up in a corrugated iron house on the side of the Pioneer River in Mackay, 
And so when I saw, <laughs> it's very similar in colour, and uh, so when I saw this for the first time, it triggered this emotion inside of me. And um, But I, I just wanted to, you know, talk to you, because we were talking about that intangible stuff that you can't touch, but you know. And I think, you know, we've, we've all experienced it, and some of us are in touch with it more than others, but, I, you know, just like, why did you put smell in there and... I think I think that's the thing. Like I've I've been looking at this and um, you know what's been written and the photographs that are there. They're all by these white men. They're not my people, my community. They're not representing things. So how can I create an archive that is our story and our archive that is not just this colonial archive that has existed, which has told a particular story and a particular side of history? And it brought me to, you know, like, there's this, there's this ant intangible, what would they have smelt, what would they have seen, what would they have heard, you know? And, and it's those stories and it's those songs. What, what are those things that, you know, make you feel something and that you know that should be passed down and remembered and, and how do we get that? Like, if, there's, if, if we can't have those stories anymore, what can we have and how can we create a memory of it and like the structure as like a as an object as a memory that that is a that is an archive in a way that moves out of that museum and those drawers and those filing cabinets and thinks about people people living in those spaces and not just you know not just like another number and another quota and another person to 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 work that field to to you know to tick that box and yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think I, I think it too. I like the reclaiming of that narrative, like, and that's very much the uh, that, that's kind of work I like to talk about. That, that I feel that I do the most is actually helping people to reclaim that narrative and um, providing space for that to happen as well. Because I don't think. Um, you know, it can. You know, you can have all kinds of spaces that that can happen, and uh, but supporting that when something when that happens with people as well, I think that's really important. But I think it's sort of um, like I was very lucky in this instance to work with Frey Carmichael. You know, Quanda um, McCormick, you know, amazing curator. You know, who who um, you know that care in that space to to make sure that you're. You know, you're doing hard work that that you know is looking at trauma of your family, and there is a real sense of loss, and you experience. I can't imagine what you experience every day going to that museum, um, and having to you know be someone there, like making sure that that collection is okay. And there, there are people who do that, like Kimberly Milton and um, you know, like um, who who do this work for their communities, which is incredible. But also, you mentor young artists. You work with Digi Youth Arts activating the museum and letting them take over. I think um, that's really important, great work. Yeah, no, um, and, you know, Digi Youth Arts, uh, you know, well, they're an organisation that really pushed the boundaries and those, they came into the museum and did an artist in residency. They brought mentors with them and so my job was about providing space, access to collections and also giving them people time to actually process what they were seeing and uh, really uh, 
during that process, it was sort of like we tried different things. I was working with uh, Lithia Beetson, who is the artistic director of DigiYouth Arts. And uh, the kids really pushed me to my limits as far as what is my responsibility in the museum, what am I doing there, how can I, how do, what, what are my emotions? And um, it was probably the first time in a very long time that a people, that I had been pushed to really um, being that vulnerable and actually thinking about uh, the emotions, my colleague and I actually, Leonie Coggill, who used to, who, she's now retired, she was the repatriation manager, but, you know, how much uh, we repress um, emotionally to be able to do our jobs on a daily basis, um, but also to be able to, you know, bring people in and also make sure that, that everyone's in a safe space when they're in. And, you know, you don't always do it, but you try your best and... Um, but also you like trying to keep the institution at bay as well because there's business when you, you know, we all need to take care of in that connection and uh, acknowledging ancestors and, um, and I think that's really important to be able to provide people space. So when people come in and, you know, have visitors from all over the world, um, across the Pacific, you know, coming in and acknowledging ancestors in that collection and... It's a really powerful experience and just making sure people have the time to really take the time to... Because we don't in our daily lives and that's something I'll come back to in a moment. But, um, you know, but giving them time to really process in that moment. Um, and something during Plantation Voices is that um, we ran a what, what we call a white gloves event where we bring at the State Library and we brought out all the archives so people could have a look and we brought the community in to have a look at it. And, uh, you know, it was, what I realised was that in our busy lives, we're so busy doing the doing, the living, you know, paying the bills, etc. trying to pay rent. Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> just paying it, trying to pay rent, you know, um, keep food upon the table. But we don't actually get time to sit in our history and actually process it for ourselves. And, and, and that's why, you know, these things weren't talked about, because they don't have time to talk about it or think about it. They, you know, they were just trying to survive and put food on that table and for all the other people who turned up in the house, feeding them as well, you know, that's, yeah. that's what it was, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, and I think, and that's, I think some of the shame comes from that because you're just busy living, you don't actually get time to actually learn your story. And, and part of that, um, from that, that perspective of my family in South Africa, the Indian perspective, is the caste. Um, people who were taken were often of lower class, dark-skinned brown people, and the, um, that, that, that shame of being from, you know, one of these people, you know, you, know, you know, you didn't come just here because you're a business person looking to make some money. You came here because um, you thought you were coming to a better life or you were tricked or, you know, you were kidnapped, you know. Yeah, yeah. totally. And, you know, uh, I don't know, it'd be interesting to hear what your experience is, but our, you know, our old people used to always say, you know, it was about having a better life, you know, and um, I had an experience back in 2000, no, way before 2000, it's going to give away how old I am, <laughs> 20 odd years ago, let's do that, um, where I went to Vanuatu, which is the home islands of my parents and um, where my uh, great-grandparents came from, and it was the first time we'd all been to Vanuatu and I'd gone to the market that morning and I'd come back 
and found my father talking to the locals. Um, and I, I sort of understood, but didn't really understand the language that they were talking in. And, uh, you know, I had this moment and I was like, oh, excuse me, Dad, you know, um, can we have a chat? And I said to him, oh, Dad, I don't understand. How can you understand what everybody's saying and I can't understand? Like, and he said to me, well, we were always, he said, when the old people spoke to us, they spoke to us in language. Um, and in this case, they were talking Bislama, which is broken English, pidgin, and um, and I said, he said, so I understand how to hear it, but I don't understand how to speak it. Um, and the old people said we had no longer use for that language and that we always had to speak English because our new home was now here. That's exactly what happened with, you know, with my family as well, um, with apartheid as well, you know, um, to succeed, you know, you, you know wearing suits and... Um, you know, doing all these sort of actions, you know, and, and then there's that whole mim mimic man, you know, sort of um, that, that, that sense of things of, of trying to, this is what you do have to, to survive. Um, and, you know, my mum's my mother and the older people spoke language, but she wasn't taught, you know, that didn't happen. In some families it did, but it was just this whole, no, you know, like English is the language you have to to you know, and in schools they spoke English in the all Indian schools because of segregation, but yet they all spoke English, you know. Yeah, I think um, so. I, I, you know, there's moments, and I, there's a artist Jasmine Tago Brisbane who lives in New Zealand, and I, I, I talk to her a lot about her experience of living in New Zealand, where um, you know people know language and they do their dance and it's taught in the school and the history's taught in the school and I said to her, um, I'm sure she won't mind me saying this, but, um, you know, what does it feel like, you know, uh, to be in another place and to see that happening and, um, and she said she feels sad because we don't have that connection and we don't have that language and we don't have a dance. Well, my mum... You know, she self-taught herself in Hindi. That's not our language. But, you know, she went and sought this out and um, she's passed on what she can to us. And from that, you know, she's instilled culture, what there is of culture. Because, you know, segregated communities, they did keep their culture because, you know, they weren't integrating communities. They were kept separate. Um, so they did hold on to things, but it's, like, not just one... You know, they're from all around India, so this sort of mesh of all these Indian cultures kind of infusing, um, and, you know, um, what, what does that mean? And that's the sort of thing you talk about when you talk about, um, like, I guess, the diaspora. A lot of um, Indians from India, their perception of those, and part of that diaspora is very different. You know, you're not really Indian, you're not from here but you may be culturally Indian and that may be in your DNA and this and that, but, you know, that perception of what, what's okay or not or what's, what makes you who you are. Yeah. 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 And I, I think... Um, and that's what I like about your work, though. Like, because, you know, as much as I talk about this loss and the trauma, you know, a big part of my work is about claiming our history our story today, because our story is part of the history of tomorrow, right? So I think, you know, your work is so important to capture your family's stories. But I think it's sort of like um, 
my perspective is coming from this privileged position to be able to produce this work and to tell this history, that's what I've got to do because they couldn't before. They weren't in that capacity, they didn't have that power. And, um, you know, like you're in this, you know, like in the museum having this access to this archive, being able to produce work and tell these stories, um, you know, it's something really powerful and create a space for healing and conversation. Like this conversation, it's so important. It's part of the work, you know, it's part of our healing, it's part of our family healing, you know, it's, 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 what yeah. we need to do. Yeah, no, definitely. And um, as part of Plantation Voices, I was able to look at the library collection. And I've used this collection for 20-odd years um, to support work that I've done over the years. And um, But I had, I had this real mental block when I was trying to write and write the labels. And I thought, what, what is going on? I've, I actually sat there for, I don't know, three to four days and I didn't write a thing. And it's not a good look in those institutions not to have anything written on paper. And, uh, but I thought, right. And I sat there one evening and I went, right, I need to just write down what it is I'm feeling right now in this place. And uh, I, part of that, was about acknowledging my ancestors for the first time. So for the first time, I was actually looking at these photos and I was seeing their faces. I must still get emotional now. But I was seeing their faces for the first time as individuals. And I knew from that point on for that exhibition, it was about putting these archives up so we could acknowledge our ancestors, we could see them, we could acknowledge them, and we could take them with us into our future. And that was a big part of that connection and giving the community that, oh, that space to be able to do that. Our ancestors were tough and they were resilient and, um, you know, th there's no shame. Like, I'm proud of where I come from and that history and, and my family is proud and my mum is proud and um, let's, let's, you know, let's own that um, and tell these stories. And I think, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, uh, there's so many wonderful stories out there and I'd love to hear, like... Um, I'm going to have a part two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'll just yeah. share. Um, I did another exhibition a couple of years ago for another curator. Um, and it was called uh, Working on the Railways. And it was about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and South Islander people working on the railways. And we interviewed uh, this lady, um, Mrs Minicom. And she was talking about her husband and how he worked in the railways. And how she... They would pack up their family and they would travel from railway camp to railway camp around the state. And she said to me at the end of the interview, oh, you know, this isn't really my story. This is about my husband. He was, he was the one with the story. And it was like, uh, you raised 10 children on the railways, packing them up from place to place and taking them around the countryside so you and your husband could be a family. Um, you know, and I think, like, acknowledging her story and when we put that up for people to see... Um, her, she brought along her two daughters and a son that night and they rang their siblings in North Queensland and they were all crying on the phone. Um, to see that release of that emotion, that to see their stories be acknowledged, to have their story be recognised, um, you know, that's why I do this job, I suppose. That's And to be able to 
see that release for people. It's a really special kind of, um, uh, you know, I'm really lucky. It's a real privilege to have, uh, you know, and a real honour to be able to share that experience with lots of people. Um, yeah, and I think that's, that's a small example of, you know, you go to look for a railway story of laying down sleepers and what you do is you get a family that connects over their history probably for the first time. And I think I'm very lucky here tonight to have um, my peers and my colleagues who, um, you know, like other artists who, who do this work telling their family stories um, because they're all different, you know, and um, these stories are from, you know, from Fiji, from, you know, from, from all around, um, not just one place. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I think, um, you know, Manisha, Shivanjani and Joella, um, you know, they all have their stories to tell and they're doing important work. And I think I um, feel very lucky and fortunate that we've all been able to come together tonight to talk about this history and share these different stories from this history, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I, I've said this since this year, like just before, that um, I've n not really opened up really about some of the, these conversations with other audiences, but tonight it felt right um, because I know that we come here with different experiences and different stories to tell. Um, and, you know, and there's all perspectives to this story. And, 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 you know, and if that triggers that conversation and, uh, I know I got to work with Joella for the first time in Plantation Voices, but actually our families are connected from way back. Her grandfather was actually... My father used to live with, at her grandfather's place. Uh, and so, you know, but that's that connection, right? You know, and it's nice to see. But it's that, it's that family connection that keeps this going and just like our connections with our... Um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander brothers and sisters and our brothers and sisters from across the oceans and um, and our I shared history. Yeah, right? I think that's, that's a really important thing, that there is this shared history and there are differences and things, but um, as a community, um, amplifying each other's voices um, is, is such an important thing to, to, to make this history, like, you know, create a space for it to be heard and, and that not lost and not hidden and, and not put it, you know, to put it out there. Yeah.